Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your non-managers and individual contributors, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this 12-month program, we'll be taking your employees through topics that include communication, managing your boss, getting results without authority, customer service, problem-solving, decision-making, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and we'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take the program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. I know that many of you are probably working very diligently putting together DEI initiatives as we sort of move past the pandemic and into the future of work. It's a priority for many of you, and that's why I think today's speaker is going to be a great benefit to you. James McKinn is the author of the book, The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. Now, he helps organizations reach what he calls their ignition point, which is the optimal performance through the alignment of people, process, and technologies. Now, he admitted to me, and he will to all of you, that he's a nerd. He's a tech person first and foremost, but he has taken his interest in that and transformed it now into his new perspectives on diversity, which are very systems-based and really bolster the bottom line. It's a much different perspective, but I think something absolutely worth checking out. So let's quit talking about him. Let's talk to him. You know what time it is. Let's make sure that seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. Make sure the personal items tucked underneath the seat in front of you. It's time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. James McKim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mac. Great to be here. Hey, I'm really glad that we could connect. So, James, you are the author of the book, The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. And since our audience is made up of people whose big concern is organizational performance, our <laughs> HR community, I think this is the perfect topic for the perfect audience on the perfect day. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this. But before we do, James, I was hoping you could tell us about your journey. Tell us where you started, how you got to where you are today, and what you are looking to do in the future. Well, I started um, in college. I um, received degrees in computer science and philosophy, which uh, seemed like kind of disparate degrees and uh, fields of study. But I like to say that um, I can explain what a bit and a byte is, and I can theorize to their existence. <laughs> um, so that was my start with, with college. And I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a techie. I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. Um, so I spent most of my career actually in the technology world. Um, I went to work out of college at a small software house, um, developed some business applications, 
Uh, then I went to Digital Equipment Corporation, which some of the older uh, folks will remember was uh, at that time was number two, uh, only to IBM. Uh, and uh, so I worked there for a number of years uh, during the 90s, uh, went through the right sizing boom that happened uh, and actually launched my own consulting practice with a, a friend I had met uh, and uh, led that for 10 years doing IT strategic planning consulting. And I came to the realization that I've been doing this consulting work, uh, but hadn't actually had a position where I had that responsibility. So uh, I took the opportunity when my partner had a heart attack to say, you know what, let's maybe I should actually do this work that I've been consulting on. Uh, so I took a position as a CIO at Dean Kamen's uh, first foundation for his robotics competitions, uh, which was a great time. I learned a lot there. Um, and actually, before I went there, I started another company that was an um, asset tracking company. And back then, um, this asset tracking software and technology that we have you know, in the little chip wasn't around. So we actually developed an asset tracking device that first was the size of a shoebox. <laughs> and we eventually shrunk it down to the size of a cigarette box in the, I guess, in the, oh, Around the 98, 99, we got it down to a shoebox size. <laughs> and that was quite a quite an experience, um, which we didn't get enough funding to really launch that. So I've been through that experience of building a company from scratch and then having it fall in because you didn't get the funding that you were hoping to get. Um, but so with that, um, working for um, first for a while, um, Things changed at first, and I decided it was time to leave. And then I started working uh, at the behest of a colleague of mine from digital days uh, at HP. And uh, she was in the learning and development group, which um, I'd done learning and development work while I was at digital. So I was familiar with uh, the work and with a number of the people because HP actually bought out digital through compact acquisition. So I knew a lot of the people in the organization. Uh, so that was my first uh, real introduction to HR. And so I did that for about nine years and um, really came to understand the value of HR in an organization and came to understand the nuances of how HR has to work and how it can work successfully in an organization. Um, uh, so after about nine years, uh, HP decided that I was too old and lived in too expensive a part of the country, the world, actually. Uh, <laughs> so with a lot of other folks, uh, I, I left and started my own consulting practice doing strategic planning work. And in, of course, the summer of 2020 happened and the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor kind of changed the way the world was thinking about social justice and it kind of harkened back a little bit to the, the, the late 60s. Um, but there seemed to be something different this time. And so with that, I started thinking, well, you know, there's, it's great that we're looking at this from a social justice perspective, but there's a real benefit to diversity from a business, from an organizational performance perspective. 
And I started looking around and trying to see who was talking about that, who was really describing it. And I found books that were from a social justice perspective and from an interpersonal perspective, talking about the benefits of diversity. But I didn't really see much at all talking about from a business perspective, why diversity could be an advantage. Um, so I said, you know, maybe it's time to write about that. And that was really the genesis of the book. Wow. So before George Floyd and events of 2020, had you even thought about even moving into this space? I mean, you were in the HR realm, certainly exposed to it, but was that really the springboard that moved you to this part of it? Well, as, as it happens, I had been doing work in the Episcopal Church since the mid uh, late 90s. Um, it was one of those cases where I went to a meeting um, of what was then the Anti-Racism Committee of the Diocese of New Hampshire. Uh, and I just went there to observe. And I guess I must have opened my mouth and said something that made sense because our bishop then about a week later asked me to take over his chair of the committee, <laughs> <laughs> which I never thought I would do. But when your bishop says, ask you to do something, it's hard to say no. Mm -hmm. So I actually, from an Episcopal church perspective, since the late 90s, have been working on diversity within the church and racial reconciliation in the church. So when the 2020 time came along, it kind of seemed like a nice merger of my professional life and what I've been doing in the Episcopal church for quite some time um, to, to look at diversity. So the, the 2020 wasn't the first time I was looking at this whole notion of diversity, but it was the first time that I really started looking at it from an organizational performance perspective. That's interesting. So did the diocese look at it the same way that, because you mentioned that's kind of what got you going down this path. Had, has the Episcopal Church always kind of thought about it this way or have they had revelations? Um, the Episcopal Church has thought of it from a social justice perspective. Okay. Um, and only in the last few years did it really start thinking about, well, how does the Episcopal Church as an organization need to deal with it? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I've been also trying to help a, a bit with as well. Interesting. So I had first kind of pegged you as this, like yes, you admitted it, you're a nerd, a tech person who right. suddenly comes into this. But it sounds like you've always considered this if you're in your after hour stuff and your volunteer right. kind of work. So it seems like the perfect measure. But you've said something a couple of times that is intriguing to me, is that diversity is more than just social justice. It's about organizational performance. Right. So this is where I'm wondering if your tech background and your sort of non-HR kind of experience has helped you in this. And then after that, what does that actually look like, the organizational performance piece of it? Yeah. So the tech background absolutely helps in the not being grounded in HR. <laughs> So I tend to look at things because I've got that computer science, that science background from a show me the data mm -hmm. perspective, right? <laughs> Which HR, of course, tends to not be so data-driven, although we're trying to move HR in that direction of being more data-driven. Um, but I, I always have had this data-driven perspective and this um, view of organizations also as sort of a machine. Mm -hmm. Right. So there there's certain things that need to be in place and need to operate in certain ways. There are processes that an organization has that from the technical perspective, we try to automate as much as possible. Um, but also we from a technical perspective, try to provide 
systems that help to uh, maintain data and to enhance workflow. Um, so that, that, that technical background where I was building systems that were workflow systems <laughs> helped me to think about and understand, so how does the organization really operate? And then the learning and development background brought the people aspect because people are the organization. You don't have an organization without the people. Right? So when we look at the people, we look at organizational, when we look at personal performance, and the personal performance is what makes organizational performance. Uh, and I really love the work of Kurt Howe um, from his book, um, the, the Organizational Performance System, The Key to 21st Century Performance. And he talks about organizational performance in terms of three levels. The first level is around stakeholder, what he calls stakeholder value delivery. And it looks at the shareholders in the organization, it looks at the customers of the organization, and it looks at the community in which the organization is performing. Uh, the second level he talks about is called the technical core competencies and financials. So that's where we're looking at the processes of product development, of manufacturing, if you're a manufacturing organization, um, service delivery, uh, sales and marketing, those processes, right? Uh, and then there's the third level he talks about really are the, what he calls the intangibles that are the organizational performance drivers. So there are things like what's the strategy and the business model? Uh, what's leadership in the organization doing? Um, what's the human capital strategy for the organization? Um, how is the organization managed and governed? Those kinds of things that help to make sure that the processes are executed the way they need to be executed that will therefore help to achieve the stakeholder value delivery. So with that kind of structure, we look at how does diversity, equity, and inclusion support that? How does it really help the organization to perform? And as I wrote the book, it was really interesting. The word that kept on popping up time and time again was perspective. Having different perspectives at the table and not just at the table. This is another case where you know, we hear the term, we want to have a diverse organization all the time. Well, as it turns out, having a, just a diverse organization can be just as bad, if not worse, than having no diversity at all. So it's not just the diversity piece that's important, but it's the equitable inclusion of that diversity. And that's what gives the perspectives that help to bring better decision-making, 87% better decision-making in organizations that are more diverse. Uh, it brings the ability to reach broader and diverse markets. Um, and, and who doesn't want broader and diverse markets, mm -hmm. right? So looking at how different perspectives get brought into each of those three levels of the organizational performance system is where the benefit really comes in. So when you talk, James, about diversity, what are the various pieces of diversity that, that we're talking about here? Is it gender? Is it race? Is it intellectual ability? Is it able-bodiedness? Which of those kind of get considered in that? It's all of the above. And okay. contrary to most people hear the word diversity, they're thinking race or they're thinking gender. But I really love the definition of diversity created by Marilyn Loden and John Hopkins Institute in 1991, 
she created what's called the diversity wheel. And she said that diversity is really about personality characteristics. And she said there are some primary characteristics that we have that are characteristics of our personalities that don't change over our lifetimes, or if they do change, they change once. So our race, that's not going to change over our lifetime. Our ethnicity does not change over our lifetime. Our gender really doesn't change over our lifetimes for most of us. Now, some of us may change it, but if we do, it's a once-in-a-lifetime change. Mm -hmm. um, so those are primary characteristics of our personality. Uh, and then she said there are secondary characteristics of our personalities that have more to do with how we interact with the rest of the world and that are, are a little bit more malleable. So um, what our income is changes over time. It's how people value us, right? How much they are willing to pay us. What our religion is, what our habits are, um, how we dress. So those are characteristics of our personality that are secondary to uh, those primary characteristics. And then um, Lee Garden Schwartz and Chris Rao in 2007 updated uh, that original model. And they added a third set of characteristics, which they called organizational characteristics. And that's about how we interact in an organization. So are we a senior person or a junior person? Are we a manager or an individual contributor? Are we part of the sales function or part of the marketing function or part of manufacturing? What function do we play in the organization? Are we part of a union or not? So when we say we want diversity, what we really want is different personality characteristics in our organizations. And it's those different personality characteristics that bring the different perspectives to the table. So when we say the table, I think the table is kind of like where all the suits sit, right? All the executives are at the table, which HR says I need to be at the table. And absolutely they should. Right. But in the same respect, I don't know if I would invite, you know, the newly hired, you know, recent college graduate to the table, essentially, because there's table things that are more relevant to strategic stuff. So how do we use diversity to reach that? So, you know, even in my company, Boss Builders, you know, right now sitting at age 58, I also realize that I'm older than almost everybody that's ever in my workshops. So if I'm not careful, I'm going to wind up being like that old man that says, get the hell off my lawn. So how, how would I use like a different type of maybe generation as diversity? Because, I mean, I know if I would have it at the table, but how do we... In other words, I guess, how do we get those perspectives? It's great to have the people that have them. How do we get them? Yeah, so I, I would say that for some of those even strategic level uh, discussions, why not invite a younger a, a one first year person into that space? Mm -hmm. um, if senior executives feel that they can't at least allow someone in to at least hear the discussion, even if they're not going to allow them to speak. And I, I would proffer that um, there may be an opportunity in some of those meetings, maybe not all of them, because there are, for senior level folks, some sensitive issues that have to be discussed. So not for every meeting, but how are these executives, these leaders, going to really hear what's going on in the ground level if they don't let younger folks in, for example, or if they don't Make sure that there's a woman represented. This, this notion of representation is so important. 
And so if it's not in a meeting, at least make sure there's a feedback mechanism in the organization and in a culture of providing feedback that goes up and down the chain, the management chain, uh, with not just the ability to hear that feedback, but reflect back to the entire organization that this is the feedback that was heard. Uh, and in fact, one of the things I talk about in, in the book is uh, that when we create goals and objectives, we should be measuring ideation. We should be measuring how many ideas are generated and who's generating those ideas to make sure that we are getting the different perspectives into the mix. Okay. So when we start to go down this path and, and so somebody who's listening to this says, you know what, we need to increase our diversity here. We need to work on this. I would imagine the first thing that people would think of is what checks the box. Like, for example, we're, we're doing this in June. So, oh, well, we need to have a pride celebration because mm -hmm. June, right? Or a Juneteenth celebration or whatever that is. How do we get past those obvious things that look like we're just checking boxes into what really works? What are some of the most common misconceptions people have about making this go forward? Yeah. So one of the, the common misconceptions for this is that it's expensive. And it is not expensive at all to have leadership understand and become inclusive and being, being inclusive on a regular basis. And talk about the definition of inclusion is the active, intentional, ongoing engagement with people. So that's how you get over becoming performative, which is the, just having the pride parade, but making sure that you're actually living into it okay. and living into it in an equitable way. So also looking at your policies and procedures to say, where are the barriers being put up to success for these people who are trying to do their jobs, right? How can we, how is the institution through its policies and procedures not being inclusive, not allowing diverse people to, to be at the table or be involved? So in your experience, do most organizations eventually get it right? Or is this something that's going to be a, just a struggle that's going to something you have to really pay attention to. It's something that, that you really have to pay attention to. PricewaterhouseCoopers has developed what they call the diversity and inclusion maturity curve. And they say that organizations uh, are at a very um, emerging level when people in the organization don't really understand what diversity is about. Uh, or if they just think, well, we have to, Think about diversity because of compliance issues, EOC rules and regulations. So if you're at that level, then you're not really doing much about it or taking advantage of the diversity. But you move up the scale, up the, up the curve, uh, as more people start to understand what diversity really is and what its benefits might be. And as you start to think about, well, in your talent life cycle, how are you going to get the best people into the organization, diverse people with those diverse perspectives? And how are you going to keep them in the organization through career development opportunities? So as you start to think about that, you move up the curve until you get to what uh, PwC calls differentiated, which is where everyone in the organization understands what diversity, equity, and inclusion are. They feel it is a core competency of the organization, and they don't even have to think about it. It just happens. Mm -hmm. So most organizations will never get to that differentiated level. Uh, today, most organizations are somewhere in between the 
um, the emerging and the basic, which is the first level up. And it does take years to, to move up the, the scale. It's a, it's a continual improvement kind of, of process, but it, it's well worth it. Now, I don't know if you know this, you obviously know a lot about this. What percentage of companies, like where we are as maybe as a nation in terms of, so, so you gave us the highest level and then the entry level, like where do you think most companies are today? Is it like 30% to the top or 70%? I know that's a tough question, but yeah, are we it, even getting close? I guess is the question I want to yeah, ask. So it's, it's a great question. And uh, I'd say the range is most organizations are around the basic level. Okay. So there's plenty the of work to do then, in other plenty, words. Right? Plenty, of, plenty of work to do. Okay. Well, I guess for somebody who's heard this today and says, boy, I'd really like to, to get rolling in this. It makes sense. What would you recommend the first step be that, a, that a, let's just say it's an HR professional who says, hey, I need to start lighting the fire under some folks here and see if we can move forward. What would the first step be? Well, I'd say the first step is to make sure you're educated yourself. I mean, you're aware now that it's an issue. Um, educate yourself as to what some of the pushback is. What are the barriers to success? Uh, and then start talking with others, maybe form a diversity committee or a diversity equity and inclusion committee or a diversity equity and inclusion and belonging, whatever you want to call it, but create a committee of folks who want to deal with this issue, who want to talk about this issue. Um, and that buoys you <laughs> because you're not then working on it alone. Um, be knowledgeable about the Statistical benefits, we talked about efficiency, effectiveness, relevance, and financial viability as the definition of organizational performance. So gather the data that lets you go talk with senior executives using their terms. Don't use HR terms. Use their business terms about financial viability, about effectiveness and efficiency. And Price uh, um, McKenzie has said that organizations that are diverse are 27% more likely to um, outpace their peers in EBIT. Mm. That's the kind of language that senior leaders, the C-suite wants to hear and will make them motivate, mm. which addresses one of the barriers that we see is that management doesn't make it a priority because they don't see it as a priority. But when they hear that 27% more likely to outpace their peers in EBIT, boy, that sparks some interest right away. Yeah. So starting a diversity group, um, getting an understanding of what the, the business reasons are for this, and then starting having those conversations with leaders about its importance uh, will get their buy-in. And then you can actually start to maybe build a little bit of a, a program that might start with some training for everyone in the organization. So they start to know what this is about. And leaders uh, trained in how to be an inclusive leader. And there's a great book. Uh, from uh, Jennifer Brown called How to Become an Inclusive Leader that talks about uh, the, what she calls the leadership growth continuum, going from unaware uh, of the value of diversity and looking at it, as we talked about, just from a compliance standpoint, to being an advocate where you're intentionally looking at how to change systems to remove barriers. So those are some first steps that I would recommend taking. Excellent. Well, I mean this with all the respect in the world, James. You are absolutely a nerd about <laughs> Thank this you. stuff. I, I have had you know folks on my show before, but 
nobody that can that has obviously done the the labor. You've done the research. You've done the work, and that makes everything you say in my book validated as my other guests as well. But this was really amazing for me to see the amount of work you've put into this. That said, James, how can my audience reach out to you for help to get a copy of your book? Uh, what is the best way that somebody could reach you? So uh, to get a copy of the book, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, you can just search for the Diversity Factor Igniting Superior Organization performance there. It's available in Barnes and Noble and Borders Books and, uh, and a few other places as well. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can visit uh, our website, organizationalignition.com. And there's a place there where you can, can uh, contact me. I'm also on LinkedIn at uh, JT McKim Jr. And you can reach out to me there. Excellent. Well, James, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. And for those of you who are listening and say, hey, it's time I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to James and, uh, and I'm sure he can help you. James, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present, as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs, more information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, you may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.